Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Welcome to another episode of the Self-Build Plus podcast, where we chat with self-builders, suppliers, and experts about all things home building and renovating in Ireland on both sides of the border. I'm Astrid Matson, your host and the editor of Self-Build magazine. This podcast is the first in a series of talks for MICA-affected homeowners. The topic today is what to expect from the process of building your home. So just uh, just a tiny bit of context in terms of mica and pyrite. Um, those are, I think they're minerals anyway, <laughs> that when present in concrete, they attacked the structural integrity of buildings. So now we're at a stage where a lot of these houses have to be rebuilt. rebuilt. So the government has stepped in to provide a bit of financial support. And a lot of campaigners say these supports aren't enough. And one of those campaigners is Michael Doherty, who's here with us um, from the MICA Action Group. And um, I suppose when he reached out to us, we realized the best way to help those affected by MICA eating away at their homes would be to gather all the information homeowners need to rebuild them. So Michael is going to start us off by briefly setting the scene, explain the level of grant support the government's offering, uh, and then we'll be joined by our self-build expert, John Corliss. So to kick things off, Michael, um, just a, a bit of an overview on the grant team and who does and doesn't qualify and all that kind of jazz. Hey, thank you very much, Astrid. So first of all, I'd just like to... Uh... Thanks, Self-Build Ireland, uh, for taking us on. It was an idea we came up with probably a couple of months back. And um, I was really interested in what I'd seen uh, through their Facebook page. And I thought, you know, with the skills shortages that we have, uh, particularly around Donegal and a lot of labour that have that has gone abroad or gone to Dublin and other sort of more high-profile parts of the country, that um, Self-Build was something people, you know, at least should be equipped with uh, some information about and then uh, you know it's everybody's own decision at the end which way they decide to go so uh, I think this will be really really good um, I'm excited about this for the month of February uh, it's not just a Donegal deal there's uh, six affected counties albeit there's only two of them currently in the scheme that being Donegal and Mayo uh, the other four should be making their way in there and arguably should be there already that that campaign and that fight continues but um, with regard to uh, the, the Mike Action Group. The Mike Action Group is uh, on the go now for almost a decade. And um, really, it, 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 it very briefly, just for those that might not be uh, uh, much aware of it, uh, the, the, the Mike Home are very aware of it. But, you know, this was something that started around a kitchen table in terms of people, a couple of families 
concerned about this cracking that um, first of all was written off as uh, settlement cracks, um, only to find then that they uh, continued to deteriorate to the point where we couldn't uh, we couldn't um, write them off as settlement cracks anymore. And um, the quarries were contacted um, again, um, not not great responses um, and a lot of denial of issues and so on. Um, but when we started to join the dots, we found out that there was more and more homes being affected to the tune now where we believe in Donegal alone, we have around 7,000 homes affected at this stage in the game. Um, the campaign, um, you know, escalated and uh, we brought the fight to government, which resulted in a, uh, a defective concrete block scheme uh, under IS465 being announced in January 2020. It was meant to be a 90-10 scheme, so it was a grant scheme, and that grant meant that 10% would be funded by the homeowner, 90% uh, by the state, or so we thought. Um, when the administrative claims were issued then four months later, we found that through a series of caps and exclusions, that was screwed down to a 60-40 scheme as opposed to a 90-10, leaving the average homeowner out over 100,000 euro, 110 to be exact. For our average size house, that was just completely unsustainable, uh, and we had to go back and recampaign and do it all over again. We got the enhanced scheme then announced on the 30th of November. Um, that has brought some additional benefits. Okay, the upper cap of 75 has been increased to 420. Um, there is an allowance now for rent and storage: 15k for rent, 5k for storage. Um, there's also the, uh, you can avail of the second grant for a second home if you happen to be renting a home out, which is RTB registered, um, then you can have your own principal private resident and the buy to let that you've got also done. Um, but there are shortfalls, shortfalls, homeowner, the holiday home completely excluded from the scheme, which is a which is relation. They bought and paid for their homes exactly the same as everybody else. But they're currently outside of the scheme, and we can battle there. And there's another, you know, there's other shortfalls in it as well. A massive one being the grant level that we're going to get. It should be 100% redress the fault of the owner here. Yet, um, you know, we said the 9010 screwed down to 6040. The housing minister has announced uh, on the 30th of November that it will be a 100% redress scheme. Yet, hand in hand with that went a sliding scale that said the allowance for our area in Donegal would be a thousand sorry 145 euro for the first thousand square feet 110 euro for the next thousand square feet and then a hundred euro per square foot thereafter so for an average sized home in Donegal which is just under uh, 2400 square feet it meant there was a 65,000 euro fall to the homeowner against 150 euro per square foot which was pertinent at that time it's has since increased again, but we know the council were signing off houses at 150 euro a square foot, and effectively we were getting 123 euro square foot through the sliding scale. Completely unacceptable. We did get a letter then uh, from the minister uh, sent to the Mike Action Group and to myself um, on the 23rd of December that said it would be SCSI-based proposal. It wouldn't have anything to do with the housing department. Um, it would be their independent assessment of what the true cost should be for any of the options, be it a demolish or be it any of the other mediation options. And that at that point, he would have to make a call because it was responsibility to either run with it or to put, provide 
an alternative proposal. In, in the highly unlikely event that he would do that, uh, we would at least get to see what the SESI proposal was, and we could compare that to what we actually were going to get through the minister. And if there was any difference between the two, we would know that SESI was interfered with, and that as such is not the independent assessment that we were promised. So we do continue to watch that and watch that like a hawk. So long story short, why are we doing this? Uh, we're doing this because there's a series of things in there that people need to be aware of. And this is primarily geared towards the demolish and rebuild as opposed to the other remediation options. Um, the, the, the planning situation there is that there are no exemptions right now, but the uh, plan is that when the new enhanced scheme is rolled out, be that September or whatever date it seems to float about there, that a like-for-like -like building will not require permission. Um, also, a like-for-like -like building, there are uh, exemptions to Part L and M uh, that would allow for to have chimneys, you still to have a solid fuel system um, or a oil fuel system through a and so on, and your old windows if necessary, as opposed to the new regs and rated windows. Um, but that's only if you're going for an exact like-for-like -like home. And what we're seeing so far in terms of the applications is coming through, they're not like-for-like. -like. You know, 20 years later, uh, people are seeing things that they would have done differently, and rightly so, you need an opportunity. There has to be some silver lining in all of this, and they're taking that opportunity. Um, with that, you use any exemptions, and you are now building to current regs. So that is the step that you take with the decision to do something other than a complete like-for-like. Like. And once you're in that zone and you're into something that's the latest regs, then we must explore all the available options that's out there. That's why I believe this is so important. And I think John will do a really good job in explaining what that's gonna look like for us. So I, I don't wanna say much more than take up time um, because I'm really keen that we get into this, but thanks everybody that has signed up for this and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Thanks a lot, Michael. Um, that's brilliant. Uh, I suppose for, for us, when you mentioned other remediation options that you know, we do, cover uh, renovations as well, like large scale, like I suppose mm -hmm. our definition of self-build is quite wide ranging in the sense that, you know, it's the home, it means the homeowner is in charge of the build. So it could be paying a builder or a company to deliver a turnkey or doing most of the work themselves on a DIY basis. But um, yeah, as you say, it's up. To, it's uh, it's John's stage now. So uh, John, if you want to get us started there on the topics we are covering in terms of where to start. First of all, um, I'm delighted to have this opportunity, and um, I want to, I, I suppose, in some way, express my sympathy to all of the people and empathy to all of the people involved in this. This is a, a horrendous experience for all of you. Um, and even if you got 100% or even if you got 150%, in other words, that you ended up with 50% of the value of the house on top of it, it wouldn't pay you for the trauma and the nuisance that's involved in these things. And I have huge sympathy for anybody that's involved in this. But anyway, uh, just to give you a little bit about my background, um, I worked as a project manager in construction for many years and um, I made every mistake that could be made and some of them on numerous occasions. And I battled through Board Planola, 
through arbitration, through the high court, all sorts of different things. So I had a lot of experience of that. I worked as a lecturer as well in construction management. I taught BER assessors along the way, and I've done a lot of work as a construction journalist. And I'm not selling any building product tonight or anything like that. I just give independent advice. And that's mainly around house plan interrogation. But I cover all aspects of the construction industry as well. So I'll talk to you a little bit in a moment about house plan interrogation. But that's mainly what I have been doing. Uh, and I kind of cover everything from concept through to completion. And my my logo, or not my logo, but my, my positioning statement is that I can save you thousands. And I give talks at the self-build shows. And that's always the line I finish on, that I can save you thousands. So just maybe um, I'm, I've started this from the very uh, broad, uh, very basic stage um, as to so starting about, first of all, what is the self build? And it doesn't mean that you have to do all the work yourself. What it means really is that it's the process of having your own house built as opposed to buying an existing house or one off the plans. So self build Ireland, the company that run this um, seminar tonight, and run the self-built website and the self-built shows have kind of defined that their, their, their existence have defined what a self-built is. And um, some people, you know, when they hear that phrase, they think, well, I'm not able to do, you know, put in foundations or I'm not able to put in, put on roofs or anything like that. So it doesn't mean that a self-built is that you're, you're having the, doing the process of having a house built as opposed to buying something ready-made or off the plans. So for all of you that are involved in this, in the, the MICA Action Group and the people who have um, experienced this, it's a new and unexpected journey. It's not a journey that you expected that you would have to make ever again. And then, as Michael said at the, there a couple of moments ago, um, what you thought were settlement cracks turned into be major problems and structural defects. And now you have to rebuild your homes or a build like for like or build a new build or whatever. So it's an unexpected journey that all of you are on. And I'm not going to dwell tonight on um, what has happened or how much money you'll get or the defects or the, any of that. It's just the whole process that's involved now in terms of building a new house. And it's an exciting and a demanding opportunity. And um, the processes and designs and legislation have changed dramatically really since you know your last house was built whenever that was and i don't know michael and maybe you can give me an indication of the typical ages of these houses that have developed the defects are they five years old or 15 years old or how old is the oldest one of them michael maybe uh, well it generally takes around six to seven years type thing depending on the house and depending on uh, how much of deleterious material is present in there uh, and the compressive strengths associated. So it can depend, but generally six or seven years after the build, you'll start to see cracks that are a bit more concerning than your typical hairline cracks. And we would have houses generally, you know, around the 1995 forward, uh, but we have a couple of houses back as far as 1985, but that would be the exception. Okay. You'll get flyers either side, but you're probably in the main talking about houses that uh, are about 95 onwards. And the concern is that we probably have houses built as recently as two and three years ago that still haven't shown anything, but we know we've tested blocks. And unfortunately, um, they're, they're not good blocks. So 
this will run for some time yet. Yeah, okay. Thanks very much for clarifying that. Yeah, okay. Well, over the years, the process um, changes completely. Um, it's often driven by legislation, uh, but style and um, taste and everything um, and personal choice plays a role in it as well. So processes have changed and they're changing all the time. Um, but everybody that's uh, involved in this has a unique opportunity now. Um, most people or couples start with what they think uh, they will need in a home. And they really don't know because they're, they're starting out on the journey. Um, so they, they envisage what they think it will be. Um, but the people that are involved in this group and in this, this situation, this horrific situation, have past experience. And that is a huge, huge help going forward now because you have lived in your houses with your families and you know um, how well your house functioned or didn't. And you can learn from that. And I've often heard this phrase that you have to build three houses to get it right. And I, I was um, doing a seminar one time in Punchestown and an architect was on ahead of me and he finished off by saying, you have to build three houses to get it right. And I never forgot it because I thought, first of all, from an architect's point of view, which is a horrendous thing to say, because who can build three houses to get it right? And secondly, if you've built two of them wrong or not satisfactorily, what makes you think you'll get it right the third time? So this concept of having to build three houses to get it right, very few people are, uh, have the opportunity to do that. And hopefully none of the people that are involved in this will have to build a third one. But you have an opportunity to build a second one. And you have an opportunity now uh, to either go with the like for like that you're talking about, Michael, in your introduction, where you build a 1995 house or a 2005 house or whatever. And you're exempt from the if, if this legislation is passed you'd be exempt from the current building regulations. But the only thing I would say is, why would you do that? Um, you know, you have an opportunity now to modernize and to, to get, you know, um, a modern house at the very latest in terms of uh, performance and everything. So um, the concept of building three houses to get it right generally comes from um, not properly thought, the houses not being properly thought out in the first place. So everybody that's in this situation has a, an opportunity to now go forward and build another house and to learn from what they did uh, the last time and now build something that is more suitable or different if they feel that that is needed. They may not. They may think what they had was fine and that's fine too. It's not a case of right or wrong, but it is an opportunity. And that's why I say that you know, this is an opportunity to turn your experience into an advantage. And that's why I called this talk embracing the opportunity, because that's really um, the opportunity is there. You have a unique opportunity in the in the trauma and everything that you've had in coupled with all of that is an opportunity as well. So where to start? Um, well, obviously, your site will more than likely be predetermined. The services are, are already in place. And when you talk about building costs, uh, Michael, um, earlier on, and the cap and the, um, the tiered system for, um, the, for the redress scheme, um, the fact that the, the site is, is there, the services are there, the landscaping is probably in place. These are huge advantages and will reduce costs, building costs. So if you hear of a cost of X per square foot or Y per square foot or per square meter or whatever. Um, it's often the case that that landscaping and that access road 
and everything and the services, the cost of those are included in that. So your re-establishment cost might not be quite as high um, because those will, will already have been in place. Um, and planning permission... Sorry, just, ahead, just the only one thing... Sorry, John, the only one thing I would say in that that counters it quite a bit is that, that um, because it's a home that we have to demolish, first of all, there's a lot of cost associated with the demolish. And it's not like a house that was burned and, you know, you bring in a digger and a lorry and you take it all away. You know, everything's still there to be recycled within the house as well. So we're finding the demolition costs are quite substantial here as of 20 and 30,000 in, in some cases. And uh, there's say, also yeah, a lot of... Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. yeah so that's there, a very there, valid point, Michael. That is a yeah, very valid point, is. absolutely. Yeah. That you have the additional cost of the demolition uh, in that. And uh, I take that on board. Uh, broadly speaking, planning permission won't be an issue, I don't think, because uh, there's a house there on that site already. And I think that there will be a certain amount of goodwill towards what the applicants are proposing to do. But the, the, the legislation isn't fully in place. But that said, in Ireland, planning permission is, all, is always an issue. And when you go to build a, new, a fresh house now on that site, and you have to apply for planning, if you, do, if you don't do like for like, uh, planning permission, there will be issues there um, that will arise. So it's something maybe to just take into account. In terms of, of home design, people are talk about a house and building a house and having a house built and everything. But I think it's important to distinguish that, to think of it as a home. And everybody should think of it that way uh, as opposed to a house. It's your home and it's a home that you're building. And learn obviously from past experience. Think about what you need, what you want and what you would like to have in your new home and to prioritize those uh, items. And that might be that you'd like to have, you need three bedrooms, you'd like to have a fourth bedroom, um, or you really like to have a swimming pool or whatever it is, and just see what you can do within your budget and to prioritize prioritize the items. I always say to people um, when they come to the self-build shows and they're talking to me about starting the process, I talk to them about making a list, not to go doing sketches themselves or anything, because that uh, prejudices what the architect or designer will come up with. Just make a list of what it is you want and prioritize that list, that your core things that you have to have in your house might be three bedrooms, um, it might be four bedrooms, it might be whatever, but that there'll be certain things that are non-negotiable, key things that you have to have. And then there's the next level, which are things that you'd really, really, really like to have and kind of want to get in there if at all possible. And then the third level tier would be things that if budget allowed or if design allowed, you'd like to have in that as well. And, and to prioritize those and to give that, that's the brief that you should give your designer. You touched on the, the building regulations, Michael, and the building regulations, um, of course, keep changing. And the regulations are usually government driven. Um, it's usually uh, EU driven and largely government driven as opposed to homeowner driven or opposed to uh, something that's of uh, that the homeowners or groups of homeowners really want. I mean, in terms of, for example, the environment, environmental impact of a house and the whole energy saving issue, that's driven by legislation. And most people that want to build a house grumble about having to do that. Some embrace it and some are really up for it. But in general, people see it as an additional cost. 
Um, there was also the issue of um, certification. And a few years ago, the minister uh, at the time of the environment, Phil Hogan, it was, brought out legislation that houses would have to be certified by an independent certifier. And on the face of it, that seemed like a great idea at the time. But when it was examined closely, it wasn't that much of a benefit, but it did add considerable cost, five or 6,000 um, in a lot of cases to the cost of building house. So that was again, legislation driven. So building regs tend to be uh, driven by government and driven by legislation rather than being lobbied for by the public. But, um, but they are changing all the time. And there's been huge changes in the past 20 years. And you said there, Michael, that some of the houses that are, uh, that you've, that are in, involved in this uh, MICA issue are from 1995, and some of them are up as two years ago. Well, as, little, as late as three years ago, um, the building regulations have changed. So they keep changing all the time. And what was satisfactory in 1995 or 2005 wouldn't necessarily meet the legislation of today. And if you're talking about maybe next September before the whole process is agreed, um, and if whenever people are going in for planning and everything, you know, it's usually it's from the data that the planning commission is given um, that the, the legislation of that day. So there might be changes again, is what I'm saying, but there's been huge changes in the past 20 years. Uh, there's huge emphasis now on environmental concerns. And the main areas are insulation levels, building detail, and the need for generation of renewable energy on site. In terms of insulation, I was talking to a guy yesterday who sells insulation, and we talked about a house that would be around 200 square meters. And he said that the cost of insulation for that house at the moment was around 15 to 17,000 euro. So, you know, it's, that's a substantial amount of money now. And it's, it's that and all of these other bits and pieces that are driven, driving the cost of building to the levels that it is at at the moment, which is higher than it has ever been and seems to be just going in the one direction at the moment. But so the insulation that went into the house in 1995 was 50 millimeters of aeroboard or similar into the cavity. That won't be acceptable today. So there's the additional cost of that. First of all, the cavity nowadays is wider if it's a masonry house. If it is a, a timber frame house, the, the stud on the outer walls of timber frame houses increased in thickness, had to, but to accommodate a suitable amount of insulation. So the insulation levels have gone up. They have driven up the cost, not just in terms of the purchase of the insulation itself, but the size of the building, the, the wall that that has to go into as well is wider and more expensive to build. Building details as well. There's been a lot of changes in the legislation and that, particularly around insulation around openings, windows, doors, and the like. And also, of course, the whole issue of air tightness and air changes per hour and the need for a building uh, energy rating uh, at planning stage and at co construction stage as well. So the, the whole thing has changed in the course of a few years. And this has huge implications for self-builders and it has brought in additional building costs. The traditional Irish house, as you knew, was a terraced, a semi-D, a two-story or a bungalow, or a derivative of the bungalow, the L-shape or the T-shape. And from the 1930s, houses were mainly block built. I'm sorry to remind you of blocks, but that's what they were. Timber frame came, became popular from about 1995 onwards. 
And everybody thinks the timber frame gained popularity because it was had better insulation or whatever. And that is not necessarily true. The main reason, or one of the key reasons why timber frame became popular in housing schemes and um, developer-led uh, housing projects was because the block layers were unionized in a lot of cases and uh, in sometimes were difficult to deal with. And with the, when the timber frame kit came about, it was possible to put up the house and weather it in the matter of a few days. And then the follow-on trades could be working away inside. And the block layers who were quite uh, militant um, couldn't really delay the process of the house. So people don't normally, it's not maybe that well known, but that was one of the key reasons why timber frame houses became popular in Ireland. Um, and they're still very popular. Then of course the house rendered finish often with stone trim and concrete tiled or artificial slate roofs, uh, fibre cement slates. And that's the traditional house, double glazed UPTC windows, painted wooden front door. So that has been the traditional Irish house for many, many years. The modern house though, designs are often more ambitious um, and the look of houses is different as well. There's a variety of styles and shapes and structure options. And this is a key for new, uh, for people going into self-building now. There are all sorts of different options now for constructing your house other than the cavity wall with blocks and insulation in between it. There are other, other ways of doing it. And the fabric materials vary. The fabric is the outer skin of the house, the, the block work or the brickwork, um, or if it's a timber frame, or if it's metal frame, or insulated panels, or um, and the roof and all of that. So that's all classed as the fabric. So there's a lot of options now in terms of fabric materials. And double and triple glazed windows, um, they're not always UPVC, but the requirement for their insulation properties has changed dramatically. Um, and that's measured in U value, the unit value. So the lower that number is, the better. And in the 90s, that was around uh, 1.8 or 2, I think it was, a U value of 2. And now it's down to 1.2 in the south. So that to achieve that requires a better window, a more expensive window than was built in the house 10 or 15 years ago or 20 years ago. So there's little things like that that are legislation driven that have brought costs up. Um, but there is a benefit as well. There's a, they're a better insulator. So um, it just that's just a, a quick mention of that. And door materials vary too. So for somebody who's now embarking on a self-build, are they going to go for a traditional or a modern style of house? The house as well would need to be suitable from your family's need, for your family's needs now and in the future. And the uh, future proofing of houses is very important. So in terms of future proofing, if you have a young family, you might need a lot of rooms and when you when they get older they might you might some of them move, might move out hopefully or at least you'd be thinking along those lines anyway and if that is the case then you might not need as many rooms so the dividing wall between two bedrooms if at this stage at construction stage if you put that in in some sort of material that it could be taken away down the road and make that those two rooms into a bigger room the reverse of splitting a room if you like knocking two of them together um, and so that's easy enough to do, provided that there's no structural implications of that wall. So that's what I mean by future proofing. Another idea in terms of future proofing might be that 
uh, you have a sitting room downstairs and a living room as well, but you have no downstairs bedroom. Um, but at some point in the future, that living room might become a downstairs bedroom if needed to be. We're not always going to be as mobile as we are now. So it might involve putting in the services at this stage for an ensuite in that room, but concealing them below the wooden floor or the carpet or whatever finish you put, tiles, whatever you have in that, so that if that ever has to be converted to a, an ensuite, it can be done really quickly, matter of a couple of days, just put in the fixtures and fittings and build the stud wall around it, as opposed to coming along with kango hammers or whatever and breaking holes through the wall or down through the floor or whatever are trying to beat this thing into submission. So even if you don't have a downstairs bedroom, which I believe myself, everybody should, but if you don't, or if you, you can still provide for one in the future, and it won't cost much to put in the uh, sewer outlet for a toilet, to put in the, the outlet for a shower and the outlet for a sink and to run the pipes uh, from the hot press or from the uh, plant room to them and not connect them, just have them there that they can be accessed easily. So that's what I mean by future proofing, that um, your house can be changed and adapted quite easily. And it's very easy to do that once you have designed it in from the start. Now, there is another point as well in terms of that, and this goes back to the cap of 420,000 euro that you mentioned, Michael, and that the government have offered at the moment, or that seems to be the, the situation. I find that people are building huge houses now, and I was very interested to hear what you said that in Donegal, I think it was that the average size of the house was 2,200 or 2,400 square feet. 400. 2,400 square feet. Now, that is a very that is a very practical size of a house. And I'll be talking about sizes of houses in a moment, but I see loads and loads of people building huge houses, three and a half thousand square feet houses, which are fine if you have a young family um, and they, you need space. But when they move out then, you're left in a huge, huge house. So I think in terms of, of trying to get built for the 420,000 or in terms of practical ideas, House size is something that you need to look at very carefully. The house as well should have low operating costs. I think that that's very, very important. Now, low operating costs can be achieved in lots of ways. For example, if you have a lot of glass on your house and it is, say, north facing, there will be a lot of heat loss through that glass, but there won't be uh, any solar gain because there's no sunlight in the north. So in terms of the design of your house, Minimize, minimizing the number of windows on the facing north and facing northeast and keeping them as small as possible or as practical makes sense for me. But sometimes there's a beautiful view or there's a reason why we want to put a lot of windows or big windows or whatever north facing. And if you do, there will be a penalty for that in terms of the energy consumption of the house. So there, there's a lot of things there uh, like that, that to, to take into consideration. Um, when we have a room that's lovely and warm because the sun is shining in the window, that's because the window is a poor insulator. If the window was a good insulator, it would be look like looking at the sunshine on television. Um, you'd see it, but you wouldn't feel the heat of it. Um, generally speaking, the wall is six times a better insulator than the window. 
So if you put in a window at 1.2 of a U value, which is the building requirement, and you put in you put that window into a wall, the wall has to have a U value of 0.2. So six times 0.2 is 1.2. So it's six times worse a window is in terms of heat loss than the wall that it is in. So that's fine if the windows are facing south because there will be some solar gain when the sun shines from the south and heats the preheats the room and preheats the house for you. But when, when it's facing north in this part of the world, we don't get any sunshine in the north. So just little things like that can add to the operating costs. Another one that can is the shape of the house. And I'll talk about that in a moment. As well as that, the house should be easy to maintain. I hear people saying all the time that whoever comes up with the self-cleaning house, like the self-cleaning oven or whatever, that that's going to be the next big winner or whatever. But maintenance as well. If you have a property, as you know, apart from the cracks that you had in it, excuse me a moment. Sorry. Um, apart from the, the cracks or whatever, there's still maintenance in the house. There's painting, there's cleaning the gutters. Um, there's, you know, painting the front door. There's clean, keeping the footpaths and the drives clean or whatever. So maintenance of the, the house is a consideration as well. And that's something that can be designed in as well to, to minimize uh, that. I think as well, a house should be sympathetic to the site that it's on. Um, and by that, I mean, it should, when it's finished, it should look appropriately. It looks like it's appropriate to that site. Um, now that's a personal thing. And what is that like? I mean, is that a bungalow or is it a modern thing that's all glass or all oddball shapes or whatever? And it's a very much a subjective thing, but I think it should be some sympathetic to the site. Uh, however, it is that you would define that. And as well as that, of course, the house should hold its value and increase its value, obviously. It shouldn't be something that, that will, will lose value. In terms of design considerations, well, location is going to be dictated by the site that you already have. But perhaps the location on the site might be something to consider. If you have a, a large field or something that maybe a half an acre or an acre of a site or whatever, where the house is located on that can be significant. For example, if it is, is it sheltered where it is? Uh, could it be higher? Would it benefit from being higher? We've had houses that have had um, flooding issues are very close to it because they were on low parts of the site or on low sites. Um, is, is there a danger that somebody could build right outside the fence in the next site and cause shading? In which case, moving the house further into your site will minimize that. So these are just things to, to, to think about in terms of the location of the building on the plot of ground. The size of the house as well that I've we've talked about and we've touched on and the 2000 square foot house. And it'll be very interesting, Michael, and I'm not suggesting you do it or I'm not suggesting anybody do it, but it, it would be really interesting to find out of the people that have the 2,400 square foot houses on average, you know, if they were building again, is that the size they would build if the 420,000 or money wasn't a concern at all? Would that be the size that they would build or would they build bigger or would they build smaller? Um, but for me, 2,400, 2,500 square foot seems to be a very practical size of a house. And once it starts to get much bigger than that, um, you get into maybe rooms that are bigger than they need to be and um, the resultant costs of that. Um, but I talk about size just to give people a, maybe an indication. A three bed semi-detached house in any estate is around 100 square meters, in or around that. A four bed semi is around 
110 square meters. So the, the 100 square meters is roughly a thousand square foot or a little bit more, and the 1100 square foot or thereabouts. A bungalow, the traditional Irish bungalow is 125 square meters because they all came about, unless there's been an extension, they all came about as a result of funding that was available from the county councils, the local authorities at the time that meant that um, you could get what was called a council loan. They were mortgage brokers of their day in the 70s and the 80s, um, provided the house wasn't any bigger than 125 square meters. So the famous book, Bungalow Bliss, um, which was produced by Jack Fitzsimons of Kells, the, the architect, all of his bungalows never exceeded 125 square meters. That was the cap size. So majority of bungalows dotted around the country, that's roughly the size of them. So when you're looking at the drawings of your house or what size of a house you would need, these are just reference points. They're not, I'm not for one minute suggesting that people should, a three bed house should be only hundred square meters. I'm just saying that that's typical sizes and it'll give you something to compare against or whatever. The house should be future-proof as well as I've talked about and it should be sellable. And um, what I mean by sellable is that if you wanted to put it on the market, that there wouldn't be some major burden against why it would sell and on the open market. And that could be um, access, where the access road was or whatever. In terms of construction, Methods, I'm not going to mention the first one because you know all about that. Timber frame is very popular now, and there's there's a number of options with timber frame. There is the traditional type of house which can be just done in timber frame as opposed to block work, or there are specialist timber frame companies who offer timber, timber houses completely. Um, steel frame is another option, and it's interesting now with the building costs and the shortage of labor that a lot of big building contracting companies have started opening up or purchasing steel frame companies who are able to do modular walls uh, and deliver them to on-site and assemble the house on-site as opposed to building it on-site. Uh, insulated concrete formwork is another one. That's where you buy, they're like Lego blocks really, except they're much bigger and they're done with insulation and concrete is poured in between them. And the wall is the reverse, if you like, of your blockwork wall, instead of having uh, masonry, insulation and masonry in the wall, it's the reverse. It's insulation, concrete and insulation outside again. And they put a render on that uh, on the outside and then it's studded on the inside and plasterboarded. Structural insulated panels or SIPs is another option and they are preformed panels that are simply um, as bolted together on site and there can be done for roofs and walls, and it's another form of construction. And then there's what I call system houses, and that's specialist companies who come, they have a, a, a number of house options, and they come and they put the house up for you completely, and it's timber studded inside, it's timber externally, and it's um, they have their own cladding system. Um, so these are just some of the construction methods that's out there. There's also straw bale, and other options, but um, there's not many people building straw bales. In terms of who'll build it, um, obviously the options are a contractor who takes care of everything, including materials, security, and insurance. Subcontractors then specialists, examples would be the groundworks contractor, whoever does the structure, then somebody else doing roofing, somebody doing electrical, carpentry, et cetera. And I deliberately left out the block layers because you know about them. And then the system suppliers, 
And the example of that would be timber frame companies, kit-built houses, insulated concrete formwork, and so on. And then another option is direct labor, where you buy the materials and you pay people to use them. So a quick look at the advantages and disadvantages of each thing. In terms of the main contractor, the advantages are that there's one firm to deal with. So you're only dealing with one individual guy or, or whoever runs that company or whatever. So it's, it's one package that you do and that contractor delivers everything. There's a VAT advantage in that, in that if you buy the materials, they're VATed at 23%. If a contractor buys them, he buys them at 23%, but when he fits them in your house, he charges you VAT at 13.5%. So there's, there's a little bit of a difference in the VAT there. Um, it's a fixed price as well if you go with a main contractor. And this is something that really uh, gets me hot under the collar because I see popular television programs now where um, they're modernizing a house or renovating a house or maybe even building a house. And we hear them saying all the time, well, I hope this will come in under budget or around budget and I won't go over budget or I won't go too far over budget. And of course, because they're making television programs, they always go over budget. Things are omitted and there is a great drama and it makes for great television. But the downside of that is that it has normalized this idea that costs will overrun. And if you appoint a main contractor and if you have gone about it correctly with the contract and a proper set of drawings and a bill of quantities, and if you don't change your mind about things along the way, like saying, well, you know that window that's there, instead of that window that's there, now I want to put in two windows there, or I want to make the bedroom a bit bigger, or I want to, I don't know what, put in more electrical sockets, or instead of putting in the doors that we were going to buy down at the builder's merchant. I saw these other lovely doors now online and I want to put them in. So if you don't make changes, it will be a fixed price and that's what it will be. Um, but you need to go about that correctly. And most building contractors will come with a contract. They'll say, well, I have a contract here and it's a standard contract that we use all the time. But there's no such thing as a standard contract because it, the, the two parties to it for a start are different anyway. And the second thing about it is that it is a contract that has been drawn up for the benefit of the contractor. And I have looked at many, many of those, and there's usually about a page about what they are to do and about 14 pages of ways they can beat the money out if you don't pay them. So it becomes more to protect the contractor in a lot of cases than it does to actually protect the person who is having the house built, the self-builder. So beware of builders, contractors that they already have in the dash of the van or in the dash of the Jeep. Um, but you should have a contract in place. And if a builder comes with that contract, you need to pass that on to your solicitor uh, to have a look at that and see if it is suitable and if there is anything in it that you need to change. Because the, the issues about defects are usually very vague. And I thought it was interesting. Sorry, the issues about defects are very vague. And the issues about how to force you to pay are very specified. And I thought it was interesting what Michael said at the start, that when the hairline cracks started in the, in the houses with, from the mica, um, that immediately people disowned the problem. It's not our problem. That's a settlement crack. People denied uh, responsibility, which is always the case. 
So you need to have a contract in place if you're using a main contractor that protects him, but it also protects you. And it's very important that this isn't just a standard contract that he just conveniently has in the Jeep or the van. You need to get that looked at and looked at thoroughly and read it yourself and don't be afraid of it. Because I think it's important that people take responsibility for this themselves and don't just think, well, sure, that's drawn up by solicitor. It must be all right. It isn't necessarily going to be all right at all. It's drawn up by the industry, the construction industry and the legal people to protect mainly the contractor. So that's very important that you have a contract, but that the contract protects both sides. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. So, excuse me again. Um, the disadvantages of having a main contractor is, again, if, as in, in that it's an advantage to have one firm to deal with, that in turn can be a disadvantage. We meet many, many builders who will tell you, this is uh, my, they give you their card with their phone number on it, or they come with a van with the phone number written on it, but there's no, no guarantee that they answer the phone, or they could do very poor workmanship uh, on site or whatever. So if you're if you have one contractor who's dealing with it from start to finish, it's important that they you have checked out their work and other people that have dealt with them to see what they say and what the relationship has been like. And I'm not saying for one minute that all contractors are cowboys or anything like that. The majority of them are not. But you don't, after having the trauma that you've already had, you now don't want to get a new form of trauma and trying to deal with somebody who is very difficult to deal with. Or whatever. So, it, in so far as you only have somebody, one person to deal with, is an advantage. Having only one person to deal with can be a disadvantage if it's not going well. And having a main contractor as well is usually the most expensive uh, of the options. Now, when I say usually, I mean that it used to be, but things have changed so much now in the last few years that it might not always be the case anymore. Um, so we look at subcontractors, then these would be people that you'd get one person to do the foundation, somebody else to build the structure, a third guy then to put on the roof, somebody else then to do the carpentry, somebody else to put in the windows, somebody else to do the plumbing, somebody else to do the plastering and so on. So that's subcontractors. And the advantage of those is it can save money because what the main builder will do is he won't have all the trades working for him, but he will work out what they will charge. And he'll put a margin on it to protect himself if there's anything, if there's any problems or, or to, in case that there's any issue with their work or whatever. 
So if you go in there and a guy take these guys on individually yourself, you can actually save money in the process. And you're not tied to one contractor if things aren't going so well. But you have several firms now to deal with as opposed to one. So there's a lot more management of this involved. And there's always bits and pieces as well that aren't the responsibility of any of the subcontractors. And you think to yourself, well, how is that? Or how could that be? But it is, it is who does the tidy up? Who's responsible for security? Who's responsible for the scaffolding? If the block layer or whoever's putting up the house puts up a scaffold, can the plasterer use that scaffold? Can the roof reuse it? So there's always bits that aren't the responsibility of a subcontractor. Whereas if you sign a contract with a main contractor, whatever is listed in that is included. And anything that's not listed in that contract is excluded and it's black or white. But with subcontractors, there'll always be bits that will, you will miss out on and that you think, well, uh, I didn't think of that. Or is that not your job? And that subcontractor would say, no, that's not my job. And one of the key areas there is where the plumber connects up to groundworks, for example, putting in toilets and things like that, and all those pipes and the footpaths and that. So that's just one example. But scaffolding and bits and pieces like that come into it as well. And it all leads to more owner involvement or more self-builder involvement. So if you have the time and the patience for that and no trades, you can save money along the way. And then in terms of the system suppliers, the advantages are, again, that you have only one firm to deal with. There can be, again, a VAT advantage in that they, they, the rate of VAT because the products are fitted and installed uh, it, uh, is subject to a lower rate of VAT. And it's a fixed price, again, if you go about it correctly and if you don't change your mind about things along the way. And with a lot of the system houses, you cannot change your th mind along the way anyway because they're structurally designed in a factory and you cannot make chop and change uh, with them. And again, the disadvantage is, again, you have one firm to deal with and it can have limited designs available. So some of the system suppliers have maybe four or five or six houses and that's really all they have and they haven't a full uh, capacity to do all of the different houses that you want or whatever. So, and then looking at direct labor um, and direct labor, it can save you money and you're not tied to any one contractor, but it comes with major disadvantages. You are responsible for the time and the attendance management, the materials, the tools, the plant, the equipment, the quality, the compliance, safety, security and insurance and everything else as well. If you just buy the materials and get a guy and pay him a day rate to do the work, you know, you're responsible for everything then. And he or she is only responsible for being there. And if you have that suits somebody who is competent and in, has knowledge in all this and intends to be on site at all times where the work is proceeding and it can save money that way. Health and safety and the law. I just want to touch on this. I'm not an expert on this by any means. I just want to give you a guide on that and uh, just uh, want to draw your attention to two legal roles that are unlikely to have existed the last time that you built. One of them is the project supervisor at the design process. And the other one is the project supervisor at the construction stage. Now, these are very poorly named job titles because they're very, very misleading. Project supervisor, design process, project supervisor, construction stage. When we look at those things, what do we think? We think here is somebody 
Well, a project supervisor at construction stage, for example, is supervising the job and making sure that the work is done correctly. That's what that title says to me when I see it. But that's not what it means at all. It has a totally different meaning. These are safety roles, not quality ones. So the project supervisor construction stage is actually the, the safety supervisor at the construction stage. And the pr uh, project supervisor at the design stage is the safety supervisor at the design stage. So you think then, well, what issue could there be in the design process? That a pen would fall off the desk and hit some fellow on the toe while he was drawing the house or the like? Not so. It is that the house would be designed in a manner that it is safe to operate and safe to build. And that the safety is a factor in the design of the house, not just in the actual drawing of the house, but the safety. But the construction stage one is hugely, hugely significant because it could default back to the self-builder themselves. And it is a legal role. Um, so just go, before I talk about insurances, I just want to talk about this safety role for a moment and the, the, the project supervisor at the construction stage. You have to, by law, appoint a project supervisor for the design process. In 99.99999% of the cases, that'll be whoever is designing the house for you. But it is not a default position. There is a document to be filled and filed and put online. And it nominates a person to be that project supervisor or that safety supervisor for the design process. So it is a, it is a, a, a legal role and that has to be done. And that is the responsibility of the person who's having the house built, the self-builder. So when you're appointing somebody to draw your house up, you have to say to them, are you willing to act as project supervisor for the design process? In other words, safety supervisor. And they have to agree to that. And both parties have to fill out a form and file it. And that is a legal document then that is part of the chain of responsibility uh, from there on. It's but more than just filing a, uh, it's more than just filing a document, isn't it, John? I mean, there's a whole report that the project supervisor design stage guy has to put together, which is quite extensive and costs absolutely. money. So it's a, it's a bit of a hidden cost. Absolutely. Um, well, it is there, and I'm just highlighting Astrid, mm. its existence, and mm. it is something that has to be done. Yeah. Now, the one then for the construction stage is the safety uh, supervisor for the construction stage. Now, if you appoint a main contractor that doesn't necessarily default to them. It is a process you have to go through again, and they have to be nominated and appointed and have to agree to the appointment of the role of project supervisor at the construction stage. And that has huge legal implications if something happened on site while the building is in process. Now, if you are doing it with a main contractor or a system house, you can ask that contractor or system house supplier if they are prepared to act as that project supervisor for the construction stage. And if they are, again, uh, the form has to be filled and the reports have to be done and that has to be filed. But it is a legal responsibility. And if there is an accident on site, which touching wood here on the table or my head, we hope there won't be. But if there is, 
that document is the, one of the first things that is looked at and to see who has overall responsibility for safety on the site. Now, if you are employing subcontractors and say you're getting one guy to do the groundwork, another guy to do the walls, another guy to do the roof and so on, who's going to act as that? The, the groundworks guy won't do it for the roofing or the roofing fellow won't do it for the guy that's doing the groundworks because he thinks, well, the groundwork guy is going to make a big hole and somebody will fall into it and I'll be responsible. So you have got to appoint somebody there. There are consultants going around that do that and they're available, but it is a responsibility and it is something that has to be done. It is a hidden cost, but more importantly than the hidden cost, it is a hidden responsibility. And that is something that will have changed for most people since they built their last house. And it's something that I wanted to highlight this evening. It is not something to be afraid of. It is just something to take ownership of. It is something to be dealt with. Make sure somebody is nominated that is going to be there from the day that the site is opened until the day the house is handed over. That that responsible period rests with that person during that period. And again, as I said, they are so badly named and I had this out with the Health and Safety Authority about why they called them this. But the Health and Safety Authority think uh, that everything that goes on in life is health and safety related in the same way that some guy making bread thinks of everything is bread related. They just have that tunnel vision in it. And I, they, some of them have admitted to me afterwards that it was badly named. But that is written into legislation now. So the name cannot just be changed. It is part of the law. So it's at the process of changing the name would be huge. So they're not going to change it. But that's what it means. Project supervisor construction stage is not a quality management role. It is a health and safety role. And it is something that has to be dealt with. In terms of insurances, um, employers and public liability um, is a big insurance all the time. And the public, if you're building a house, it's important that somebody has employers and public liability on the site while it is a site. Because the public who come in to see the job while it's going on are maybe your brother-in-law, your inquisitive neighbor, or children wandering onto the site, or trespassers. All of these can get into your site. And if an accident happens or something like that, who is responsible? So it is wise, in my view, to have insurance for that period. And even if you have, um, if you have a contractor, and the contractor is going to take responsibility or possession of the site from the day that the work starts until the work is actually handed over. You need to check that that insurance is in place. Ask the contractor to contact his or her insurance and indemnify you to get you a letter of indemnity and write into your diary as well when the expiry date of their insurance is to make sure that as that close as that expiry date approaches, if your house isn't finished, that they have insurance renewed. And if they haven't the insurance renewed and your indemnity renewed and cannot show you that, stop the work, no matter how keen you are to get into it. Stop the work until that's done. Say, no, this we cannot continue until this insurance is put back in place. Now, this is something that people never used to bother with, any kind of insurance in relation to building. But yet, when you think about it, a building site has to be one of the most dangerous places that you could ever walk onto. You're walking along and the roof has been built and you're looking up to see what way they're doing the slates or whatever, and you trip 
on a half of a block or a piece of timber that was on the ground and you go out on top of your head and you break your teeth or you mark your face or whatever. Litigation. And there we are. Who's responsible then? Well, if you have no insurances in place that indemnifies you, it will go back usually in law to the person who owns the site. And that's you. So whatever about you did in the past when you built your house, if this is one of the things that you learn from it, I think it's very, very important that you get public employers and public liability insurance. It's not prohibitively expensive, but the have not having it and having a claim could have major, major long-term problems for you. Um, employees then as well. If you get in, if you're taking out the insurance yourself, make sure that it covers people who work on the site, even if they work for the builder. Because when you're getting it, it won't cost that much more, but I think you should have it. If you have subcontractors on site or if you have direct labor, you absolutely have to have this. It's a no brainer to use the cliche. It is absolutely essential. We're living in a different time now. Also, if you're getting self-built insurance, make sure that that covers materials on site that have not been installed and the work in progress. For example, if your house is being built and you have got a delivery of insulation or you've got a delivery of windows or slates or whatever and they haven't been installed yet and they're stolen who's responsible for that so if you're getting that self-built insurance it will cover materials but just in case it doesn't check with the provider that it does that it provides um, for materials and also work in progress when your house is finished your house insurance covers the house in the event of the house being destroyed in a fire or with the flood or if whatever other risk that it's exposed to. But your ordinary house insurance does not cover uh, the house while the house is being uh, built or if you're having major work done on the house. So it's very, very important that you have insurance for that phase of the work. For example, you could have a house um, almost finished and somebody at the weekend would decide, well, there's nobody living in there and they go in and they steal the copper out of it or they steal the bathroom finishings or they steal whatever. Who's responsible for that? So with materials and everything getting more expensive, I think insurance is absolutely critical. And also that you get an insurance for structural defects. Now, more than at no, I mean, I'm in no position to talk to you people about structural defects because you are the experts in this. So structural defects are a major issue and I don't know how long this government redress scheme, whether it's going to be ring fenced to the houses that have come forward or the other ones or where it's going to be. But I cannot see the state on an ongoing basis taking responsibility for structural defects in houses. I just don't think that that's going to happen. So you can get an insurance policy that will cover your house for 10 years for structural defects. And it's well worthwhile taking it out. Gives you peace of mind. So moving on then to professional services, a designer, um, you'll need a designer to design your house. It is often, but not always, an architect. Um, and the reason for that is the whole planning permission process. Now, all of you that are uh, involved in this are in, have an advantage insofar as um, I it, it would seem that planning permission is not going to be as tricky as it would be for first time uh, uh, builders or self-builders. That said, people think that a particular designer who has a good relationship with the planner will get that guy to design our house or that woman 
because they have a good relationship with the planner and they have got one down the road and they got one through up the road or whatever. That is absolutely no reason whatsoever to employ a designer. A designer role should be to design a house that's suitable for you. They should have a brief given to them by you about what you want. And when they present their set of drawings, their first set of drawings, you should cross check that against your brief to see does it match your brief and if it doesn't say sorry there must be some mistake you didn't meet my brief here and here and here or whatever now that is something going forward i can help you with a lot but it is important to distinguish between somebody who can get your planning permission and somebody who can actually design a house lots of people can draw neat lines on a sheet of paper but i would not call them designers and in the work that i do I have done a lot of self-built shows. And as a result of the self-built shows, a lot of people have come to me with their house plans afterwards and said, John, will you have a quick look at this? Or will you have a look through this or whatever and see, can you see any issues in it? And at this stage, I have probably looked at as many house plans as anybody in Ireland or maybe more. And to this day, and this is the February, 2022, the things that are presented by designers as design would would put the hair standing in your back or your neck or wherever it is can be frightening some of them and some of them are absolutely brilliant and if you're not trained and uncomfortable with the whole thing it's not maybe something that you'd spot but you think well sure that guy had a good relationship with the planner we'll get him or we'll get her to design the house please for your own benefit don't don't fall into that trap and unfortunately, the whole planning permission process in the south of Ireland is such an issue that people who have a relationship are getting design work uh, that they shouldn't be getting because their designs, some of them are, are horrendous. So the, the whole issue of planning should be separated from design and get a good designer. Um, a project supervisor at the design process, as I said, that's the legal role. Whoever is designing your house, ask them if they will fulfill that role. And there's a cost for that, but it's essential. It has to be done. Um, and then there's a big difference between an architect, an architectural technician, an engineer, and a quantity surveyor. And a lot of people will tell me, well, the engineer is drawing the house, or the fellow down the road, he's a QS, I get him to design the house or whatever. They're different functions. They're totally different functions. An architect is the artist of the process. He or she is the person who sketches out the house. An, architect, an architectural technician is a lower level of training within that architectural business and the whole architectural model. So a fully qualified architect is high, higher qualification than an architectural technician. An engineer is a different thing entirely, but engineers get huge amounts of work in Ireland as designers, which they weren't really trained to do. The engineer is designed to deal with structural and uh, mechanical issues in the house, not so much the design of it. And a quantity surveyor is the accountant of the process. He or she does the measurement and does the sums and agrees when something should be paid. Or if a builder is looking for an extra, uh, comes back to the bill of quantities that they produce and has agreed rates for it. And a good quantity surveyor, um, if you have a, a, a difficulty with the builder, a good quantity surveyor will save you multiple times the cost that you have to give them uh, for their services. 
you don't have to have all of these, but somebody has to design the house and somebody has to sign off in the end for a mortgage if there's a mortgage on the property. Or if there isn't a mortgage on the property, you're in, you're, you're in some ways, it's worse because you think, well, should that house is built fine, now it's grand. And it mightn't be. So somebody still needs to be signing off on the quality of the workmanship. And one of the things that I haven't put in there, because it's not deemed a professional service, is a project manager, somebody, a quality manager. And when I worked in project management, I tortured sell, uh, subcontractors about quality and they couldn't understand why I was at this because that wasn't my job. What has it got to do with you? You won't be living in it, was their attitude. But I was trying to get the building built to the highest possible standard for the people who are going to be living in it and make sure that everything was done right. And I was involved in more rows and I got abused more often by subcontractors who were trying to cut corners. So somebody needs to manage the quality of that there as well. Somebody is the project uh, management side of it. And that is hugely significant now because building is a very technical uh, process. It's not as maybe as simple as it was 20 years ago or 30 years ago. The detail around windows, the detail around doors, this whole business of U-value, the whole business of air tightness, which is the amount of air changes per hour the house does. These are confusing terms. And people who are building their house can't be expected to be knowledgeable and an expert on all of these. But they're critical ingredients in the, the delivery of your new home. So somebody has to look after them. Um, and it's all, as I said, all this thing about designing is clouded by the relationship with planning permission. So in this, insofar as planning isn't going to be the issue for you guys, that it would be for others, don't, uh, there's no reason at all now to take on somebody purely because they have a good relationship with the planners. Get somebody who will design a house properly for you. And we think that because when we see a set of drawings for a house, that it is lines drawn neatly on a page that we can all do it. But if you watch a surgeon working, you know, the surgeon, we see them on television, we see what they do. And we look, they have only one pair of hands, they have a scissors, they have a needle and thread, and they have a few other bits and pieces. And you think, God, anybody could do that. But yet none of us would ever take into take it on upon ourselves to do surgery on our loved one or on ourselves or a neighbor or somebody like that. And why is that? Because we rely on that person, that surgeon, to have the training and the expertise and the experience to do what it is that they are particularly doing. Yet we think designing a house, any of us can do it. Why do we think that? And it, is a, it is a ferociously dangerous uh, concept and notion to have. So get somebody who can design your house properly. But John, there's also the architectural technologists. I mean, I agree with you that architectural technicians would be people who specialize in drawing the stuff and using, you know, the software and CAD and all that. But architectural technologists as well, just a shout out for them as well, are trained like architects. But it's it's, an, it's another option for self-builders. They, they tend to charge less than architects. Yeah, absolutely. So somebody who's trained in building design. Anyway, and you need then somebody to sign off for the payments, even if you're not doing a drawdown for a mortgage. If the builder comes along to you and says, right, well, we have agreed that when I have X amount done, you're going to give me 60,000. How do you know he has X amount done? I tell you he has. So you need somebody to sign off on that. Somebody who's going to come out and look at that and see, yes, that work is done. Or hang on a minute. That's not finished over there. Or that's not finished. 
And builders tend to do a process called front loading. And front loading is where they charge a substantial amount of the full contract for the first piece that they do. And they use that money to finance the, the rest of the job or other jobs or whatever. So they're pulling a good chunk of the profit out of the job in the first stage payment. So the first stage payment, somebody has to sign off on that. You need somebody to sign off on that who can physically look at the work and is trained and qualified and ideally insured that they have public uh, professional indemnity insurance in place, that they are, that when they sign this off, that it is actually done. And if you're getting a mortgage and when you, in the past, when you got mortgages and somebody, some of you may still have re residual mortgages on these properties and may have to um, take out mortgages on the, the this new building, um, you, the bank will insist on somebody signing off. But if you're in a lucky position that you don't have to get a, a mortgage and you have the money, you still need somebody to sign off that the work was done to a satisfactory standard and that the volume of it was done that the builder is claiming for so that they can get their stage payment and the final payment. So that's somebody to sign off on the payment. So these are professional services that you need in the process. And the project supervisor during the construction stage as well is in there with that. That's the health and safety person for the construction stage. What will it cost? Well, we've had this discussion. I was listening to Michael in, uh, earlier on about what it was cost and what the government are allowing and things like that. Building costs have risen considerably due to legislation, uh, all of this extra material that you have to put in, and also every other excuse imaginable. Brexit, COVID, container shortage, ship stuck in the Suez. I've heard them all, there's loads of things. And there's another huge one as well, and that is that everyone is an academic now. There's very few tradespeople. All the youngsters that I see are going to third level to get a degree in something, and none of them are getting a degree in block laying or roofing or plumbing or plastering. They're getting degrees in uh, office jobs or office-related jobs. So there's a sh huge shortage of labour, and it is... Uh, the process all along, in my view, has been too labor intensive anyway. The whole notion of digging the foundation, pouring the foundation, understand that. But then that everything, the thing was done bit by bit on site. Um, it, the industry has to move away from that. But you can only deal with the situation as it is today. So costs have, have become very, very expensive. And what will it cost? Um, so in terms of what it will cost, I'll just give you a few examples. Um, today, I was talking to somebody in County Leash that we're building a 2,700 square foot house and the cheapest uh, co contractor price that they had got for that was 450,000 euro. So that was 2,700 square feet, divide one into the other, it'll give you the cost per square foot. And that was for a house without furniture or without appliances. It was uh, floor coverings, um, wooden floors, um, there's no carpet or wooden floors or anything in the bedrooms, but there was wooden floors. Because this is one of the things that can, can distort figures. There were wooden floors in the living room and there was a tiled floor in the kitchen and a wooden floor in the dining area and the bathroom floors were tiled. But there was no floor coverings in the bedrooms. There was no wardrobes and there was a kitchen included in that, but it was not an expensive kitchen by any manner or means. It wasn't much up from a flat pack kitchen. And people tell you, I got my house built for 120 euro a square foot. And somebody else will tell you, oh, gee, I got mine built for 90 euro a square foot. And a third person will say, well, mine was 150 euro a square foot. What is the spec? You know, the 150 euro per square foot 
could be very cheap and the 90 euro could be very dear depending on the quality of the workmanship and what was involved in it so cost per square foot is a very it's a it's a very uh unfair way of quantifying what it costs obviously it will be a significant uh consideration for you but if you spend 25 grand on the kitchen or five grand on the kitchen if you spend you know tiles at 100 euro square meter or 15 euro square meter wardrobes finishes all of that is there a tarmac drive is there landscaping is there a lot of fill in the site is there a lot of cut in the site in what uh, michael was talking about earlier on you're finding there's a demolition cost so the cost per square foot is a very very uh, unfair way really of quantifying it but uh, john if you if you look at there was a comment then about um not being able to afford to build like for like so i mean in in terms of if if people have the opportunity to build to pass building regulations now i understand your point about wanting an energy efficient home but you can get an energy efficient home as you said without necessarily complying with the current regs it can be cheaper to build to the older standard than the current one can't it I mean, it can, absolutely. Well, it can it should in some be. ways. It can only in terms of the materials, because the labour is going to be in around very similar, and labour has been a huge cost. And building materials are, are can become very expensive, ridiculously expensive. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is going to come down a little bit. It's going to come down for a couple of reasons. I think that whatever bit of a logjam was there in terms of supply, partly because of COVID and partly because of distribution, I think that will regularise itself. But I just think what's there at the moment is not sustainable. And that that um, I find now as well that some builders, merchants that I would be friendly enough with are starting to source materials directly in Europe and aren't coming through uh, the UK at all now with it. And while they have an additional transport cost, they're finding that it is still cheaper than going through the land bridge and the, the, the transport costs associated with that. But... Um, you can go back to the building regs of the year that the house was originally built if you built like for like. And some people will probably do that. I think myself, it would be a missed opportunity, but it's still an opportunity if people want to do that. Absolutely. Uh, but in terms of what it'll cost, um, it's, it's costing a lot more than I think it should. And it's costing a lot more than is often affordable. And I just think that my daughter built a house in 2013. It was uh, 2,700 square feet and the house was finished at 150,000 euro. And suddenly we've gone from 150,000 euro nine years ago to 450 now for in around the similar house. Okay, the house now will have a bit more insulation in it. The windows will have a, a little bit better um, U value. But is there 300 grand's worth of difference in the two houses? Not for me, there isn't. But that's the reality of the marketplace today. But how can so, people yeah. save money? Like, can they reuse the stuff they have in the house? Not, can not they? Not. Well, they can reuse. How much can it. they reuse? Like, well, what can they reuse? They can reuse some of the kitchen. They can reuse some of the bathroom bits and pieces or whatever. But they can't really. They can't. I mean, if they had put um, good quality slates on in the house the first day of a natural slate, they could reclaim those and use those. But you can't reuse most of it and in a lot of these cases the houses are crumbling anyway you couldn't use a lot of the internal um there's a couple of them that i've seen the internal uh, parts of the house have been damaged as well um so 
I, I don't think there's much really there. The and Michael, Michael and his group will know better than anyone much what, yeah. what's from, from the houses, what's redeemable and what isn't. That could save on the Debo. I mean, obviously, it takes time to to salvage anything, even slates. It take ages to take them off and absolutely not damage and this, them. This, but this is one of the problems. It's usually cheaper to replace any of these things than it is to try and salvage them. You're saying on on demo costs, though. I guess yeah. of not having to cart it away. Yeah. And Michael, so then, what were you going to say? It, it it's air stuff salvageable from these houses. Yeah, well, the housing department were very keen that we'd salvage everything if we could. Uh, they of talked course. about doors, <laughs> they talked about windows, they talked about kitchens, they talked about sanity wear. Um, you know, that was their original position in our negotiations with them, but um, it sort of has moved on a bit from that now because um, you know if the engineer arrives on site and as John says, you know we've got warped windows, we've got warped doors, um, you've got you know sanity wear. You try to remove that, you know with you know, it can be all stuck down with Tech 7 or something now as well. They're not just screwed in place and try to remove um, a toilet pan or whatever the case may be, cracks. A lot of this is just not doable, you know. And the other part of it is as well, you, you know, you have to remember these are homeowners that have been through hell and back, you know, um, for a journey of 10 years. You know, is it fair to ask these people now to go um, find the additional costs that will still be required to put together a brand new house for a second time and then go kit it out with secondhand stuff, you know, that you get from a, you know, from, you know, it's, it's just not, it's just not um, a nice prospect for something that is really um, homeowners at this stage, you know, they need some sort of a silver lining to all of this. And I think it's only fair. John talked earlier, a hundred percent redress, you know, it should be 120% redress for what, or 150 for what people have gone through. I think the least can be expected that they're not going to be told that they have to use their old windows, their old doors, their old sanitary wear. Into Breaking up there, Michael. Yeah. Yeah, I agree fully no, with you on that. I don't think practically anyway, there's anything salvageable in the house because the cost of take, it's like going back to renovating old houses. Most times that you ever renovate an old house, you're nearly, cheaper to start from scratch in the first place because you have a compromise anyway when you're finished and michael is right like you're building you've gone through the trauma of all this and now you're expected to use something that's 15 or 20 years old in the house and who would do that because there's 15 or 20 years away in that anyway and what is the life of any of these things and you know are you building a new house now and putting back something that has a life of five or six years left in it or 10 years you know so i i, I wouldn't think there's much that can be salvaged just finally, two final slides, um, how self-build can help. Obviously, the members area and access to the articles and the videos as people are going through the various stages of the job. They can go back and look and reference articles and videos. There's a whole mine of information there on the website, the supplier database. And also the self-build shows. And it's well worthwhile people to go and have a look at the self-build shows um, because they'll, they'll just see the, the, what's being used today and processes and architects will be there and they'll be showing them modern designs and the like and general help. And then in terms of myself, how I can help, I can review your draft plans when you get them. I can help you do the spec in the first place with the uh, designer. I can review the draft plans. I can tell you what I think of what will work or what won't, what might need to change or whatever. Um, and I can give you general advice as well. 
and give specific advice on certain things. So that's just what I can do. And I can give follow on help as well with that. And I have very, very reasonable rates for that. And the final thing I just want to say on that is that anybody that I have worked with for the past maybe six or seven years, I've done a survey with them afterwards and I have a 100% satisfaction rating with that. And with that final note, I'll now put up the thanks, next John. <laughs> Yes, thank you. Um, thanks a lot, John and uh, Michael as well. Join us next time for more tips and advice from experts and self-builders alike. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Self-Build Plus. It'll give you full access to the selfbuild.ie website, including the Self-Build Plus journey, which is your step-by-step guide to self-building and home improving. Your membership also gives you first access to all videos and podcasts, as well as access to our members-only Facebook group, which features regular Facebook Live events. 